This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we have packed a few different shows together that we call Highlights to help you to get the most bang for your time in educating you on the topics that you want to learn from. We would love to hear from you. I am grateful that you are with us today. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Ian Walsh. Thanks for being on the show, Ian. Thank you for having me. You know, you mentioned like like helping us think like a lender and what that should look like and, you know, analyzing a project, how a lender would analyze it. And and, sure. and so we can understand what that should look like. So I'd love for us to dive into that and, and break that down a little bit. And so, you know, help us to get started, though, or, or maybe where, you know, most people make their mistakes in doing this. But yeah, get us started. Yeah. So without a doubt, I always say don't overthink it. Right. Like if you, people send me spreadsheets and, and stuff, and I'm like, if you're putting a lot of times it's way, they're overcomplicating a good deal. So it's got to just work on, on a few fronts typically. So I'm, let's just take like an easy example of like a single family flip or something, an investment property that might be a single family flip or even like a small piece of commercial that's, you know, buy it, fix it, renovate it, and then lease it out. Is that you've got to get, you make your money when you buy. I know that's the oldest saying in this game, but it's the real answer. It, it, it breeds you either room for error or profit. But if you buy too high, you have no room for error and you'll make no profit. And a lot of people lose before they even get to that point because they're buying it too high. They don't understand really what a project or a deal looks like in their market and really the, where they should be buying you know, a property at 20 or 30 cents on the ARV dollar versus you know, 60 or 70 cents on the dollar that I see a lot of times because they don't know how to analyze a property to begin with. And that's where a lot of people go wrong, I think. So from a simple numbers perspective or a simple like outlook, You've got to buy deep enough. You've got to then make sure your construction or renovation costs, if there are any, which almost all the time there are, to bring that property up to value are accurate. A lot of times people like to pay too much, put too little in. And then between those two things, there's no profit there. So I I see that. And that's really like, if you're going to think like a true private lender, that is what the focus should be is the asset, where you're buying it, how much you're putting into it, and what's that potential value. Everything in between in terms of like credit, tax returns, all that other stuff. If you're using that, you're really not a you know a true private lender in what you're doing and, and you don't really know what the asset's worth. You're trying to actually underwrite the borrower to offset your risk. So, you know, just you know, like don't overcomplicate it, don't overthink it. It's hard, right? I mean, it's hard not to, you know, want to just analyze it to death and and just, you know, make it this big ordeal. But I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on, you know, Thinking about you know getting a property cheaper or maybe the actual steps of a way that you're going to underwrite something to know that we're not overpaying it because it is when you buy. I mean the money's made then and making sure you're not overpaying. And so you know what are some tips or or things that you use then to make sure you're not overpaying? So I'd love to tell you that there's a shortcut to this, but there's not. It's screen time. It's so I'm always in front of my local MLS systems. MLS is your multiple listing services. You can't really do this with the free sites out there. I'm not going to name any because, you know, but you really have to have the data and insight into your local MLS systems. And then it's just constantly, you know, nowadays with technology, you have a map view of just like Google Maps or whatever. When you bring it up, you know, you can see exactly where the house is or do the street view. You know, you can do that with, you know, sales data, square footage data, all that kind of stuff. Very quickly, you can identify when, you know, the deal comes in, it may or may not be in a good range just based on maybe your filtering criteria of however you're answering it. But let's say it's, something worth looking at, you should be able to bring that up in your MLS system and know within a minute that, hey, there's something here. Maybe it's not exactly at the right price right now, but this is worth fishing. And then from there, you can basically just in a map view, determine extremely quickly 
you know, is this area hot? Are properties selling at the right price? Are these only investor pickups? You know, is there something else here like this? Like sometimes I'll see with like huge commercial, I'll see like a $10 million commercial deal that on paper on the spreadsheet looks fantastic. And maybe if I was underwriting it based on, you know, a lease, like a, a rent roll, maybe this works. But, you know, that type of underwriting to me is really scary because if I don't have a comparable sale that I can pull up in a map right away and look at, you know, and I have to deal with a rent roll, it really is saying, okay, the guy operating this thing is really the business owner of this building. And because of that, however, he decides to, you know, isn't whatever type of operator he is, is really what I'm investing in. It's not all the leases in the building. And they certainly help, obviously, to have rent in place. But a bad manager or a bad owner operating wise can destroy the inside of a leased building quickly. So what I have to do then is say as an underwriter or somebody who's looking at a project, okay, what's my potential out value? Well, I don't have something I can pull up on a map and go, this is the value. Then I'm just speculating. And I don't like to speculate as a lender. Like That's not what I do. I, I look at the data and go, this is what I have. So it's very important for me or somebody that they should be able to pull up, look at recent sales you know, within the last year, call it, of very similar property types. And, and if they don't have a very comforting, easing, obvious answer right then and there, they're probably in the speculative zone, which they want to remove themselves from if they're, you know, betting their own money on a deal. So So where are you going to find those recent sales? I find them in my MLSs. So I'll pull I'll go into my MLS and I go, okay, you know, there's a search criteria, it's pretty easy and you know, last zero to three hundred and sixty days. And then I'll put a geographic bubble that I'm comfortable with. Typically it's a lot smaller than people think it is. Like you can't go most regions, you can't go miles outside of where you are. You're you're usually within one tenth of a mile of where you're trying to buy to determine where those other properties are. So I'm going to go in my MLS and pull a geographic and time, you know, area that's all similar and then look for houses or commercial buildings or whatever that I'm looking at that are very similar. And if I don't have any, I don't have them. The value I'm putting on it is guessing is what that is. And I don't feel comfortable guessing. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. You can't guess in this game. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And so can you share where you're getting some some of this data? Because the data is so important, right? And then we're going to make our best decision based on this data. But where I know a lot of people are saying, well, where do you, you know, where do you find the best data? So the data I have is is all just from our multiple listing services. Fortunately, I'm in a market that has like from what I can see or have seen an exceptional multiple listing service that I've been it's very user friendly when I say that compared to the other ones I've seen. There's about maybe like nine or ten in my local market that I essentially part of easily there's two that are the biggest and then one that is fortunately in my market the biggest that I deal with is also the most user friendly. You know, if you had to like put yourself in a position. I mean, you can have different outlines and different ways to display something, but ultimately it needs to be visual. I find it needs to be visual and easy to hover over and move around very quickly. So if you're in an MLS system that's like archaic in, in its data or, or the way it displays, like if it only displays in maybe a list of properties and you can't visually see it on a map, that kind of stuff makes picking a value out difficult. So you know, mine's very user-friendly and I'm very appreciative of being in that. So I would say if people are looking, first thing, do yourself a favor and get comfortable with your MLS system locally. Every area will have their own MLS system that they... Sure. Yeah. So. so help us to think like a lender. You know, what should we be thinking about? Or, you know, what, what does that need to look like? Or maybe ways that we wouldn't even know the things that they're thinking of. So a lender, you know, a private lender, I can't speak from a bank's perspective. Because most... If you go to a bank, nothing wrong with banks. Banks are fantastic. But usually when you go to a bank, you're being underwritten as a borrower. So the bank is really, we're all asking how much are we risking? We're all saying risk, mm-hmm. risk, risk, risk. That's all we're concerned with. We're not concerned with profit. We're concerned with risk. So minimizing risk is what our game is about. 
if you go to a bank, they're going to offset their risk with you being a borrower or like, you know, what your skill set is in terms of credit score, tax returns, all that kind of stuff. They don't really know much about the asset. True private lenders are going to be focused on the asset. So the way I, as a lender, if you want to think like a lender, and I really feel like flippers should think this way, commercial guys that are, you know, retail commercial guys should think this way. Because if you think this way first, it's all gravy for you. You know, if you think then, you know, what the upside is. So I'm always thinking, how much can I lose? Like if you die tomorrow, you buy my deal, you die tomorrow, where am I? And then 30 days in, if I give you construction money and you botch it all up or you just fly to the Bahamas and disappear, where where am I? Constantly thinking throughout the entire project, day one to day 90 to, you know, to close essentially or until it closes out. Where are we in terms of, you know, how exposed am I on this project, assuming that you do nothing right? Now, I have some fantastic clients that are exceptional executors of what they do, and there's never an issue. But if you're on the other side of this, you should be thinking, okay, if tomorrow my entire, you know, if I'm flipping the house, let's just say, if my entire crew leaves me, how much is that going to set me back in holding costs tomorrow? If everybody leaves, my number one crew, boom, guy gets arrested, goes to jail, contractors, it happens, right? So if that happens tomorrow, where am I? Okay, can I afford another $5,000 in holding costs on this project while I find another GC? Is that built in here? Is there a 10 or 15% buffer that I've built in? So if you walk yourself through all the what ifs that can go wrong, because everybody, what I've noticed is that they come in thinking everything is going to go right the entire time. Every contractor is going to get paid the exact right amount that I budgeted. Every this, every wall I open up is going to be, nothing's going to be back there. You know, every tenant that I lease for is exactly going to be this much money. When the reality is it never goes that clean. So you really want to be buffering all the time and then go, okay, I do all these worst case scenarios. Am I still left with a good profit at the end? And if you go, yeah, I've checked every box and I can't lose here. You probably then bought it for the right price and you probably budgeted the right amount. Don't trick yourself to thinking it's going to go smoother than it is. Our guest is James Ng. Thanks for being on the show again, James. Thanks for having me back, Whitney. Love being here. Love listening to all your stuff. So appreciate you having me on. Grateful. James was just telling me how he listens to every show. No, I'm just kidding. But he is a listener. I'm grateful for that and uh, grateful for his time. He's definitely an expert in this space and somebody you as a listener most likely needs to get to know. But he has originated over $800 million in multifamily loans, over 125 properties since 2015 as a senior director at Old Capital. Before joining Old Capital, he underwrote over $750 million in loans over eight years for the acquisition and refinance of commercial properties at GE Real Estate as a senior underwriter. He has invested in 26 multifamily properties totaling over 7,500 units. Current portfolio is 20 multifamily properties totaling over 6,000 units. So welcome James Ng to the show, the professor of multifamily financing. James, thanks again. Uh, I am grateful to have you on the show. You're definitely a perfect guest and can provide so much just up-to-date current information to the listener and myself of what, I mean, what we need to know if we're active in this space. And maybe if we're not active, you can help catch us up as well. But let's jump in. Maybe you can give us a little more background on yourself uh, in case the listeners haven't heard of you before. And then let's do it. Yeah, a couple of things not in the bio, I would say, is born and raised in Houston, went to school in Austin at UT, and really was sort of corporate guy for 10 years. And then really started looking at multifamily investing in 2015. And at the time, started originating loans as a mortgage broker, but then at the same time, investing. And I think that's why... I read so much and try to figure out every little nuance of multifamily from the general partner side to the limited partner side to the lending side. Just understanding all the facets is sort of what I do day in and day out. 
I think it's an interesting perspective that you've underwritten that many properties over that length of time and you're a passive investor in so many deals as well. So I just think you have such a rounded knowledge base and experience. So, you know, let's jump right in though. You know, your expertise is lending, right? I mean, you're you're an expert in that. And so let's just jump into what's happening right now in the real estate market, what's changed and just help the listener and myself uh, get a better or more clear picture of, of what we need to know right now. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say beginning middle of March, once Trump made that announcement that no one can fly here to the US anymore, Fannie, Freddie, they basically put in these reserves and they said, look, we're going to still lend, but if you're going to do a multifamily deal with us, it's going to be 12 months of taxes, insurance, replacement reserves, and 12 months of P&I. So that ended up being about 10% of the loan amount in additional reserves that you had to put up. And so that put the brakes on a lot of deals. It put the brakes on bridge loans, recourse bank loans. Everybody just went to only if you had to close a deal did you get it done, Fannie, Freddie, in March, April, May, I would say. And then in June, collections had been good. So Fannie and Freddie took off the taxes, insurance, and replacement reserves. And now you just have anywhere from 9 to 12 months of PNI, depending on the size of the deal. And so that's about 5% of the loan. And what we saw was this summer, probably July, August into September, is that now all the deals that were put on hold are back on the market. So here in Dallas, where I live, I would say January, February, when a lot of deals come out, there might be 25, 30 deals on the market. And you are back to that number now. So everybody has come back on the market. And whether it's because people are scared of you know, the tax rates changing, whether people are scared of, I wanted to sell this deal now, I've held the deal longer for six more months, and my investors want their cash, there's a lot of deals on the market. And what we're seeing is there are a lot of buyers who have come back in as well. I would say more of the buyers are local buyers though. And so it is harder for people to jump on a plane from California and come to Texas. And so we're seeing a lot more local buyers at these tours. So there might be 15, 20 tours on a property, five to 10 offers, but a lot of the guys are local. Nice. So those people just aren't traveling, you think? I mean, they're just not as willing to travel now as they were six months ago or, or well, or even longer than that now. So I would say, yeah. So a lot of the institutional guys, let's say if they were in California, New York, Chicago, they would typically just fly in, see a property or see a couple properties and fly back. But now they're not doing that. So if they are coming in, it is if they are already under contract or they have you know, a very, very high probability of winning that deal. So you see a lot of properties going under contract and the operator's not even coming to see it until then? Well, I mean, usually they have hopefully somebody on the ground here. Right. And those are the people. Yeah. So not until people are getting under contract. But, you know, the brokers, from a listing broker standpoint, they're saying, look, when you fill out the best and final questionnaire, all of the decision makers better have seen this property, right? Because I don't want I don't want to award you the contract and then you then you fall back after seeing it. So what are the requirements now? The lending requirements. I know you said nine to twelve months of PNI, a principal and interest, uh, just so the listener knows. Any anything else? So that's the main thing, right? So the higher reserves is what has changed, but then also sort of January, February, if you went out and got a Fannie Mae loan or Freddie Mac loan, you're probably in that four, four and a half, four seventy-five percent interest rate range. Post COVID, 10-year treasury has gone down significantly. And correspondingly, Fannie and Freddie have gone down a lot. So they might have gone down close to 150 basis points. So 10-year treasury has essentially come down to about, you know, let's say 0.7%. 
And so that has brought your rates. Fannie Mae, you're probably 275 to three. And then Freddie, same thing, right? So you're in that range. And so we're seeing a lot of people, essentially the price of these deals hasn't changed, but the cost of your debt has gone down 20, 25%. And so that has essentially kept cap rates the same from where they were pre-COVID. Okay. So could you just dive into that right there just a little bit, cap rates versus interest rates and that just connection relationship? Yeah. So I mean, so cap rate essentially is if you bought a deal all cash, that's how much cash flow you would get. So let's say in Dallas, let's say your average cap rate was 5%. That's sort of across class A, B, and C, 5%. And now your interest rate that you were paying pre-COVID was 4 right? So there was only maybe... 100 basis point spread after you paid the debt. And so what it really means is your cash on cash might only be 6%, right? To the investor. But now if your debt payment drops by 20% and it goes down to 3%, now all of a sudden that spread between the 5% cap rate and the 3% debt, all of a sudden your cash on cash to investors is looking like 7, 8, 9%. And so to the investor, post COVID, as their savings accounts went down, in interest rate, now you're saying, hey, I can go out and buy multifamily property and get eight or 9% cash on cash. And I've got five years of interest only, then that is very compelling. And so a lot of people are back out on the market pursuing deals right now. So lots of changes, right? Especially in lending, you know, in the last six, seven months, how should this have changed or should it change the way we're underwriting the types of loans we're, we're getting? What should change on our side because of what's happened? So I would say the biggest thing is that the forecast for interest rates has changed. And what that means is before, if somebody offered you, let's say, a fixed rate product for 10 years or a floating rate product for 10 years, let's say both of them at 3%, which one would you take? Most people would take the fixed rate and say, all right, now I can sleep at night. I know I got a fixed rate for 3%. But the problem with the fixed rate is that if interest rates don't move or they go down, your debt product, nobody wants to assume your debt product, your loan. And so what you have is you have a 10-year loan, but if you sell in years, let's say three, four, five, which most syndicators do, then all of a sudden you have a thing, what we call yield maintenance. Yield maintenance on Fannie Mae loans is a very large prepayment penalty, and it can be 10, 15, 20, 25% of the loan amount, depending on how early you pay off the loan. And so that has become more difficult for people to swallow in, in these days because they might have a loan at four and a half, five percent and then the prevailing interest rate right now is 3%. So nobody really wants to assume that loan. And so you have to pay it off and that prepayment penalty directly affects your investor returns because you pay it at the closing on the closing statement, you pay it to the lender and that goes to the investors who bought that loan. And so what I'm seeing a lot of investors do now is because nobody is expecting interest rates to go up. So if you look at a forward LIBOR curve, LIBOR right now is let's say 20 basis points. They're not expecting LIBOR to hit 1% for the next seven years. So it's essentially flat over the next seven years. And so what that allows you to do is go out and actually buy an interest rate cap at, let's say, 1% for LIBOR. And that might cost you $20,000, $30,000. So instead of paying that big prepayment penalty, you can get a floating rate loan and then put an interest rate cap on it. And Fannie and Freddie... Right now, Freddie has a good 10-year product. Fannie's going to come out with something shortly. 
But that is an option for investors that I'm seeing a lot more people go to is they get a floating rate loan. And then instead of that prepayment penalty of yield maintenance, they are doing this floating rate loan. And then after 12 months, 12 months, you're locked out. But then after that, so years two through 10, it is a 1% prepay. So compare that. So let's say on a loan of $20 million, you've got a $200,000 prepay versus a $10 million prepay if it was you know, 15, 20%. So it's huge. And your interest rate essentially is the same throughout the term because you are capping that rate. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 